This is part six in an eight-part series describing the various psukim which Chazal cited from Tanakh to introduce their teaching of Megillah's Esther, sensing, of course, that the Megillah was multi-layered and that these ideas, the subtle ideas, could best be extracted by citing psukim in association with the Megillah. I want to discuss two psukim that have a point of convergence. The first pasuk is a pasuk selected by Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmeni. It appears in the Gemara in Megillah, the Yudam and Beis. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmeni, when he taught the Megillah, he quoted a pasuk in Yeshaya. It's a well-known pasuk to all of us. It's taken from Yeshaya, Perak Nunhei. It's taken from a section which we read as the Haftarah on Eitanis. It's an image of regeneration and resuscitation. The literal translation is, in the place of thorns will grow um, aromatic plants, Tachas ha-natsutz, natsutz is a type of thorn or thistle. Ya'alevarosh, green, verdant, shrubbery will grow. Tachas ha-sirpad, another type of a thorn. Ya'alehadas, it's a sign of regeneration, of a Kodesh Baruch providing life, and has messianic overtones. But Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmeni saw this image, and particularly this duality, because there are two thorns described, Tachas ha-natsutz, in the place of a thorn, Yale Hadas, a Hadas bush will excuse me, a Verosh shrubbery will grow. And the Pasik continues more or less by stating it again, Tachas Hasrupad, another thorn, Yale Hadas, a Hadas bush will grow. So Shmulbar Nachmeni saw this as a reference to the story of Megillah Esther, which had peripheral um, themes. It wasn't just the Jewish people slated for annihilation, about to become the victims of Haman's genocide, who were saved by a Kurdish Baruch Hu, but there were subplots. So according to Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmeni, one subplot, Tachas HaNatsutz, in the place of Haman, who wore a pagan deity around his body, his neck, according to Chazal, coerced everyone to bow down to him. In the place of paganism, in the place of Haman, Mordechai arises. Mordechai is the shrub to pay to Haman's thorn. And Mordechai replaces Haman. So it isn't just a general national drama about saving millions of lives, but replacing one person, Haman, with another person. One advisor to the king, Haman, an evil advisor, with a more kind and caring advisor, Mordechai. The finger that wore the ring, Haman, is now hung on a tree, and Mordechai wears the same ring. Mordechai takes over Haman's house and his authority. And according to Chazal, the displacement of Haman and the replacement of Haman with Mordechai is crucial, is important, is key, because Haman was advancing paganism. It may have been a strange form of paganism. He was encouraging or coercing people to bow down to him, but the him in this case was associated with some form of paganism. It's not clear which form of paganism was involved. So according to this view, and particularly the first part of the Pasuk, Part of appreciating Nesperm is sensing the overall battle that's waging of monotheism versus paganism. And sensing that with the defeat of Bavel, and now the defeat of Haman, notice this isn't Paras Umadai per se, we don't really have record of how close to paganism they were or weren't, at least in the Megillah, but Haman is a paganist. Haman clearly puts a Salam of Avodazar around his neck, forces the Jews to bow down, forces everyone to bow down, it is reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar's building that six-story tall 
idol, forcing the Jews to bow down. Mordechai now doesn't bow, so there's a Mordechai is repairing the, the, the submission of the Jews 70 years earlier, or at least 60 some odd years earlier, bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. So we're encouraged by Rishmol Baranachmeni to view the Nase of Purim as another achievement, another step forward in the march of monotheism. And slowly but surely we sense that the paganism is becoming less barbaric, less cannibalistic, less idolatrous. Even the paganism of the Greeks and the Romans was much more ethereal, spiritual. Gods were not molten images. They were conceptual beings. They had human form. But we're moving forward. Of course, the real move to monotheism will only occur once the second base on Mikdash is destroyed and Christianity dominates. It's, it's much further along the monotheistic spectrum. And Islam enters the world, probably the most non-Jewish monotheistic religion, we're meant to put the Nase of Purim to that historical context. Haman's demanding people bow down to him was not just a way to, to suppress the Jews and to advance his own attack against the Jews, but there's also a theological component here. The second part of that drasha of Rishmol Bar Nachmeni is not a reference to Mordechai replacing Haman, but the second part of the Pasach, Tachas Hasirpad, in place of a thorn again, the difference between Natsutz and Sirpad, they're both thorns and thistles, but in the place of the thorn, in this case the thorn is Vashti, arises Hadas, Esther's alternate name, Esther's more Hebrew name was Hadas. Again, I, I didn't say this before, Tachas and Natsutz, in place of the thorn of Haman, Ya'le Verosh, a Verosh tree, the Gemara sees that as a reference to Mordechai, because Mordechai is a play on the Spice called Mardror, and it's Rosh Lechol Habsamim. It's the first Bissamim listed in the listing of Pitum Hakitaris, which we recite every morning in our Tfilos. So Tachas HaNatsutz, in place of Haman, who placed a Natsutz. Natsutz literally means a thorn, but Chazal interpret this as an Avodazara based on another Pasuk in Yeshaya. So in place of Haman, the paganist, Ya'alev Rosh. Mordechai, Mardror, Mordechai, whose name was similar to the first Spice, enters the scene. Tachas HaSirpad, in place of the second thorn, and the second thorn is Vashti, Yale Hadas, Esther, Hadasa, replaces Vashti. Why is the replacement of Vashti so important? Vashti seems innocent almost, she seems like a victim in the proceedings. Why is it important for Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmeni to describe the replacement of Vashti as momentous? And Esther, Hadas, replacing Vashti, the Sirpad, the thorn. Why is that important? So the Gemara explains, because Vashti was the great, was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is part of Nebuchadnezzar's final punishment, the final elimination. And the Gemara sees the phrase of Sirpad as a reference to um, Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed the Beis Hamikdash, which was, uh, which was, um, how should I say, Rifidat Beit Hashem, Rifidat Zahab. The word Sirpad phonetically sounds like Rifida, which was uh, cushioned, which was decorated. The Rifida, the Beit Hamikdash, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is finally eliminating any and any last trace of Nebuchadnezzar. His last remaining kin, at least the last remaining kin that we know of, Vashti, was destroyed, and this was the final vengeance, the final payback for destroying the Beis HaMikdash. So in a sense, the elimination of Vashti, despite its particular role in the Megillah, setting the stage for Esther, setting whatever intrigue, elimination of Vashti was 
in fact, part of the redemptive process, that those who had destroyed the Beis HaMikdash were now eliminated. And as I'll mention in, in the continuation of this year and in previous year, the miracle of Purim fueled Am Yisrael's messianic hopes. They reminded them that Hashem was with them, that the covenant would not be broken, that the Jewish people had a message, that they could survive in Golis. And, and that was jump-started. They could speak Hebrew, and they only started speaking Hebrew in the end of the Megillah. Part of that process was jump-started by eliminating that last sore, that last eyesore of the Ruchanetzer's dynasty. She had ascended the throne with her husband, Achashverosh. Perhaps many thought that this could mark the return of Babel, the return of Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty, Vashti sitting on the throne. And with Vashti's elimination, for Jewish people at least, it was a sense of closure. That those who had trampled the Beis HaMikdash were now completely, completely off the face of the earth. So, this is Rishmuel Bar Nachmeni's choice of Pasuk, and he's directing our attention to two subplots of the Megillah. Subplot number one, monotheism versus paganism. Subplot number two, vengeance, removal of those who had destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, and a sense that perhaps there could be a recovery and a redemption. But if you look at his Pasuk carefully, the imagery of the Pasuk, the, the content is Mordechai replaces Haman. Esther replaces Vashti. But the image of the Pasuk is of shrubbery and verdant trees and bushes, aromatic bushes. The brosh is just a bush, but it's a phonetic association with the word mardurar, rosh l'cholab samim, brosh. Rishmuel Baruchmeni says, beiz resh vav shin, which is a shrubbery. Somehow we can turn that into brosh, beiz resh alaf shin, the first, the first spice, and the first spice was someone whose name was similar to the first spice, Mordechai. So you have Mordechai, a spicy person, not spicy in a, in a Pikewood sense, but fresh and, and aromatic and pleasant and good odor. So you have a thorn which emits no odor, or even foul odor, because it's, it isn't growing. It's being replaced by Mordechai, whose name was like a spice, which is contained in the word Barosh. And you have another thorn, the Sirpad, replaced by Hadas, by Esther, who is a Hadas. Hadas and smell nice. And there's a sense not just of replacing Haman and replacing Vashti, but creating pleasant odors. The Barosh invokes the notion of spices. Barosh kalabisamim. The Hadas emits a favorable smell. Why is this image so important to the Megillah, the smell of Purim? There's a better smell. The better smell of Purim, the smell of Mordechai, who smells better than this thorn called Haman, the smell of Esther, who smells better than the, the, this thorn called Vashti. The better smell reflects the following parallel drasha. And this is the drasha of Rava. Rava in Megillah Yud Aleph started with a very different pasuk. He quoted a pasuk in Mishli. Birvos sadikim yismach When sadikim attain authority, people are happy. Uvim shol rasha yenacham. Yet when wicked people achieve authority, people moan and groan and are depressed. And morally, it's understandable because righteous people will be kind and caring and, and, and empowering and wicked people will be exploitative and manipulative and suppressive. But he applies this to the Megillah, that when Haman rose to power, people moaned and groaned. When Mordechai rose to power, people celebrated. And the celebration, this is the key point, the celebration in the Megillah of Mordechai's rise and the suffering of Haman's ascent. 
wasn't just expressed or even felt by the Jewish people. Beravos Sadiq in the Pasuk in Mishlei that Rava quoted, Yismach Am, everyone was happy. And this is a very, very subtle subplot of the Megillah. The drama is primarily Jewish, the plight of the Jewish people, the threat against the Jewish people, and the salvation of the Jewish people. But there's a broader narrative. And the broader narrative is that the plight of Shushan, of Paras Umandai, of the people, their plight is improved by Mordechai and Esther's ascent. There's a fresh gust, there's a better smell in Shushan. And this can be detected in many, many areas. But in the grand picture, the rise of Mordechai creates waves, positive waves, positive advances across many different areas of human experience. And that's the Pasuk that Rava was citing, Birvos Am, Birvos Tzadik Yismach Am, when the Tzadik attains authority, people are genuinely happy. Birvos Rasha Ye'enach Am, when the Rasha, or that Birvos Rasha, the language Bimshol Rasha Ye'enach Am. And that's really the imagery of Mordechai as a better smelling spice than the thorn of Haman. Or Hadassah Esther as a better smelling shrubbery than the thorn of Vashti. What do we detect? We detect that this is, a, this is an event that has impact far beyond the local, national question of Jewish survival. So, for example, in the end of the Megillah, all the stories of Mordechai, his strength, his accomplishments, this entire story, this was embedded, this was incorporated to the chronicles of Madai and of Paras. This was a, a national Madai Uparas event, not just the Jewish event. Interestingly enough, the historical irony, we don't have that much record in classic Persian texts about Mordechai's rise. So, but at least in those days, it was incorporated as part of the national ethic, as part of the national saga, the national story. There was a person called Mordechai, there was a person called Esther, and they brought great tra- change with them. In fact, Another historically ironic footnote that the, the gravesite or the pr- proposed gravesite of Esther is a national monument in Iran. And despite all the antipathy towards the Jews in the state of Israel, this is a highly, highly cherished national site, landmark, and, and people visited and people pilgrimage to it from all races and religions. But, but aside from this description, what happens when Mordechai rises to power and Esther replaces Vashti? Well, some of the things that happen is, first of all, the political system stabilizes. There's a lot of upheaval, there's a lot of instability, there's a lot of machinations and conspiracies, the conspiracies of Big Son Vaseresh. Um, they fade, there's a consolidation of power. We sense that in the beginning of the Megillah, Ahasuerus is pretty much the victim of his manifold layers of advisors and bureaucrats and lobbyists and just the way that the way that the decision to dismiss Vashti is taken in the first parak is quite literally very manipulative. There are different circles of advisors who are consulted, they're all listed and you do get the sense that Ahasuerus was taken to the laundry was fleeced. You get the sense that this was more important the dismissal of Vashti, the deposing of Vashti was more important to the advisors and to their political agenda than it really was to Achashverosh. And Haman inflates the situation in grandiose fashion. If you spare Vashti, all the women across your 
counties and empires will rebel against their husbands. I mean, that's really outlandish. And Achashverosh is just a pawn of his advisors. Yet the two decisions that Achashverosh reaches subsequent to this decision to depose Vashti, number one, to appoint Esther, this happens in Paragimel, in Paragbeis, and number two, to honor Mordechai, first of all, they're healthy decisions for him. He's taking a wife, he feels lonely, he's no longer angry. Second of all, the decision in the fifth parak is to show gratitude. So these are decisions that are not leading to the death of people, but to the reunion of marriage and the show of gratitude to Mordechai, who deserves the gratitude. And not only are these decisions better decisions for Achashverosh, but they're taken not by the advisors. If you look in Paragimel, uh, excuse me, in Paragbeis, they're not his advisors, his noblemen, his aristocrats who are manipulating him, but Vayomru Narei HaMelech Misharsav, his servants, his right-hand people, the people that he lives with, the people that serve him, people that know him personally and intimately, know what's good for him, not what's good for them. The same thing in, in Parak Vav, when the decision to reward Mordechai, so uh, they, they call the Narva, Vayomru Narei HaMelech Misharsav, Gone are all the advisors, the Roei Pnei HaMelech, the advisors, the assistants, the lobbyists, this inflated bureaucracy. You get the sense that Ahasuerus' decisions make, decision-making process is healthier, is more straightforward, it's more serving his needs. There's a political consolidation. The, the, the decisions themselves are more moral. They're not leading to executions of people, but to marriages and to showing gratitude to Mordechai. And, and the way that they're achieved is much healthier politically. Second difference, he says, is militarily. All of a sudden, in the end of Megillus Esther, Achashverosh imposes taxation on all of his provinces and Iyehayam. Those Iyehayam, those islands, don't appear in the first description of his empire in the beginning of Megillus Esther, the 127 provinces. Evidently, as many point out, there was territorial expansion and conquest, and he was able to extend his empire further, and perhaps that distributed the taxation burden more proportionally, because there were more people to shoulder the same burden. But either way, you sense that this is an empire on the move. This is an empire that's successful because Mordechai has replaced Haman, because Esther has replaced Vashti. Um, probably the most important issue is there's no indiscriminate killing. When Haman's decree is issued, and then women and children are going to be killed, and, and there's going to be mass genocide, and when... Uh, when Mordechai's decrees are issued, it's defensive. It's to take revenge against those who have murdered or will murder, to defend themselves. And there's very little uh, trampling on innocent blood. It's just very directed and telescopic. And again, there's so much that's similar between the decrees of Haman and the decrees of Mordechai. And the similarities and parodies are meant to highlight the few differences. When you really want to highlight a difference, you create everything else similar so that those differences stand out. Um... I think part of what you see is not just a military improvement and political stabilization and respect of life. Remember, the, I mentioned this in a previous year, the celebration of Purim does not occur on the day of the military triumph or the day after. And you have partially a sense that people feel it's inappropriate to celebrate when people are dying in the streets, even though the people who are dying are evil and are wicked and are genocidal and are murderers and butchers you push off the celebration by a day just so people can be buried and, and, and then you can move on. Um, another one of the 
of, of the differences you sense, and the difference is highlighted because of the similarities, is the celebrations are very, very different. Mordechai, when Mordechai Yatsam Melech, Mordechai departs from the king's chambers, and he's wearing a kingly robe and all the fine linens and gold, and, and it obviously, obviously conjures up the images of the beginning of Megillus Esther, where they were lying on couches of gold and drinking from vessels of silver with fine linens and cushions and pillows. And you get a sense that the same Articles and items are in play, but they're used differently. Remember, Mordechai is not showcasing and showboating and exhibiting his riches. He's wearing this attire in order to honor the king, and the Pasuk stresses that. He wears the clothing to enter the king's palace, and when he leaves, he'll take the clothing off, because I'll point this out as well, whereas in the beginning of Megillus, Esther, Achashverosh, and all of his party revelers are just showing off their wealth it's an attempt to impress people rather than just honor people with the same gold um, the parties of Esther are parties that take place in inner recessed rooms remember when Achashverosh gets angry when he finally uncovers Haman as the true villain he runs out and he runs out to the Chatzar because the party was inside the original parties in Megillus Esther are outside in full vulgar display. It's crass, it's voyeuristic. Whereas the parties of Esther are, are purposeful and are private. Interestingly enough, Mordechai wears those clothing after everyone's happy. The Pasuk, and Mordechai Yatsam Melech, is only after people are celebrating. And, and it's a result and a consequence of public joy. Mordechai becomes an icon and a target of that joy. Whereas the, the celebrations in the beginning of the Megillah, they seem to be almost elitist. Certain people are invited and everyone else, the people of Shushan get a special party and no one else is invited. It's not an outcome of people's happiness, it's rather almost, almost uh, uh, gloating that some are and some aren't, some are haves and some are have-nots. And these are just some of the changes that take place nationwide. It's not just a Jewish story. It's really a Persian story. And the story is about moral, righteous Jews who ascend to positions of power replacing nefarious, wicked people and changing the smell of Shushan, changing the smell of the empire, creating a ripple effect. The Pasuk says many of the people became... Rashi says they converted. It's hard to say they actually converted, but many say they just became more supportive of the Jews. Minasim Masayudim, another Pasuk, they all of a sudden held the Jews in high regard. And that's part of the entire narrative of Megillus Esther, and that's why Rava chose the Pasuk, Birvos Tzadik Yismacham, when a Tzadik arises, everyone's happy. And that's why Rishmol Bar Nachmeni chose a Pasuk, which describes two people replacing two others, but describes them in a metaphor of, of aromatic herbs and shrubbery replacing foul-smelling thorns. And in the broader perspective, it once again taught the Jewish people. Not only would they survive in this first Gullus, but they had a role to play in this world, and they could change their world even in Gullus. 
They could be leaders. They could be kings. They could be influential. They could advance the human condition. They could create moral change and social agendas. And, and they had a message. And even without land, their message was still resonant and eternal. And in part, it raised their spirit as they saw themselves in a certain light. They were more empowered to go back to their land and rebuild Jerusalem. They keep stressing this, that the Nasef Purim occurs in that 18-year gap when the base Hamikdash construction began but was halted. And now after the Nasef Purim, they feel empowered to go back and rebuild. So that's a dual message. It's a message that, remember, very few Jews really came back. Most stayed in Gullus. And they didn't return to Eretz Yisrael, only 42,000 or so. So it was a message for the Jews who remained behind, that even though you are divorced of land, you still have a role to play, and Mordechai and Esther spearheaded that role. You can change. You can change Malchus Par. You know, you're not just the victim who has to defend himself and hope to God that uh, the, the conspirators will be defeated. But all of a sudden, your rise to power, your rise to prominence, can change Persian culture. And by playing that role, by creating that change... Jews saw themselves as relevant, as heroic, as historical, and the return to Israel was soon to come.